Corey Nathan here, and you are indeed listening to the Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other podcast. And as we've done a couple times in the past, sometimes we share another program that is in this space, this general intersection of politics and faith and race and justice. And there's one that I'm so happy to share with you today. It's Freedom Road Podcast, hosted by someone I've come to befriend. And I've admired Lisa Sharon Harper from afar, uh, read her most recent book that we discussed, and we had Lisa on TPNR earlier this year. And she has just really enriched my life uh, and has broadened my understanding of the history of race in our country. I've begun reading some of her other work. Uh, so I'm there's some theological work that she was involved in. And uh, she's just, like I said, really enriched my life overall. So this conversation that we're sharing, it's uh, from her podcast called Freedom Road Podcast. And it is with a really dynamic, important leader in our culture named Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. And they do a deep dive on this episode of Freedom Road Podcast on the meaning of and the hunger for the unfettered right to vote in the United States of America. Please enjoy Lisa Sharon Harper, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III on Freedom Road Podcast. And you'll be hearing from me again on Talk of Politics and Religion Not Killing Each Other in a few days. Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road Podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. This month, two big things drop. My book, Fortune, drops on February 8th. In it, I trace 10 generations of my family, demonstrating how laws and policies impacted the course of my family's future and fortunes. Then the book calls for repair of all that race broke in our world. The second thing that drops will be a new podcast called The Four. The Four will gather four national and international Black faith leaders for deep dives on issues that concern the Black community. It will feature Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Reverend Michael Ray Matthews, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, and me. So last month, we spoke with Reverend Michael Ray Matthews. This month, we welcome Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, the jazz-influenced pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ and executive producer of Unashamed Media Group. As we pick up the push for repair of what race broke in the world, I want to talk with Pastor Otis, who went on a hunger strike for voting rights, along with seven other Morehouse men and 24 other Black clergy. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so please tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us, and keep sharing the podcast with your friends and networks and letting us know what you think. All right, so on January 6th, you, 
and a bunch of other faith leaders, including seven other Morehouse men, began a hunger strike, Otis, for voting rights. You've committed to strike through MLK Day at least to call the Senate to end the filibuster and pass legislation to protect the right to vote. So, Pastor Otis, can you tell us the story of how this hunger strike came to be? Certainly. First, I want to say thank you, Lisa Sharon Harper, for allowing me to be on the Freedom Road podcast. Once again, (laughs) it is always a delight and an honor and joy to be with you and so appreciative of the work you are doing in Philly and across the globe. And the community of, of Trinity loves you. And we are so excited about what Fortune is going to do in this world. And oh. thank you for doing the, the, the research on your family. It's truly a blessing. And to be a part of that project is, is quite an honor. So, so, the- so thank you very much. And it's really a blessing to be, be on here with you. The, the, the strike was really the, the brainchild of a Morehouse brother by the name of Reverend Stephen Green, who is the chair of the Faith for Black Lives in Harlem, New York. He is a minister and an organizer, just a wonderful, wonderful brother who is, who is in the streets doing work and also pastors out of the AME tradition. Shout out to oh. all the AMEs on, on, on the podcast. Wow, and cool. Reverend Green gave me a call. Along with several other Morehouse brothers, Jamal Bryant, Devin Crawford, and uh, Willie Francois, and and a few others, saying, "Would you participate in this hunger strike?" And we thought it was just a wonderful idea uh, to highlight uh, the issue of voting rights as we are coming to uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. celebration commemoration holiday. And we felt that by putting our bodies on the line, just as our ancestors have put their bodies on the line to highlight voting rights, but know that it is a sacred right. It is a sacred sacrament to partake in voting rights for people of African descent. And that was the impetus for the hunger strike. And as a result, more people joined on, like our sister, Reverend Tracy Blackman. Mm-hmm. Other organizations said that they would join for, for a day and that they would highlight. Uh, Reverend Cornell Brooks, who is at mm. Harvard University, who's the former CEO and president of uh, the NAACP, joined in. So, so mm-hmm. we have a wonderful group of people, primarily, I want the listeners to know this, primarily millennial ministers in wow. South Carolina wow. and Georgia. What? So these are, yes, the majority oh of the God. group are millennial ministers. Many of them are in their first appointment, are assistant pastors, are fresh out of seminary, yes. graduate school. They are in smaller locales in South Carolina and Georgia. We're not talking Atlanta. We're, we're talking about the, uh, the Buforts and the small spaces outside of Charleston and Columbia, outside of, of Atlanta, right outside of Macon and Augusta and Albany. So the beauty of this is that yeah. you have people who are in spaces where these state laws are affecting their ability to vote. Exactly. And they are the ones that are participating in the hunger strike. It's actually a whole lot like the civil rights movement, I mean, because that was based in the communities that were most impacted. And you had MLK leading at like 20 something. He was an effectively in a, you know, a millennial. He was that younger Absolutely. generation. He was wow. part of that younger generation. Wow. Wow. And so why call it a hunger strike and not a fast? I did the fast for families on the National Mall. And remember we had like a big 
back and forth about whether we were going to file a hunger strike or whack fast. And actually, it was one of the organizers who were also a part of organizing um, Cesar Chavez fast, who insisted, no, this needs to be a fast because it needs to be grounded in our faith tradition. And it really needs to draw from the power of our faith. So why did you choose hunger strike as opposed to fast? Well, we recognize that it is a fast, but mm-hmm. we believe that in terms of secular culture, mm-hmm. they understand the idea of hunger strike, that we mm-hmm. are on strike. Uh-huh. We feel that the Democratic Party has not done its due diligence, has taken black people for granted. We've been talking about voting rights for the last you know, 10 years, oh. ever since the Supreme Court gutted uh, mm-hmm. the Voting Rights Act. Yes. This has been an issue in local communities. And That's the Democratic right. Party has solely focused on national and has dr- been dragging its feet mm-hmm. around dealing with local legislators. It's been dragging mm-hmm. its feet every time black people come to the table. As Reverend Michael McBride has mm-hmm. shared, the mm-hmm. Democratic Party has not been loyal to us. Now, I want, want to that's speak deep. here. Wait. I'm sorry. I just want to like sit on that yes. for a second because that's very deep and bold for you to say yes. in this moment. And so are you saying that the hunger strike is to symbolize a strike from the Democratic Party? It connects that our dissatisfaction with the Democratic Party. Yeah. That, like let's y'all, be clear here. The Republican yeah. Party is has clearly the Confederate Party. They are not a friend. They are not a friend. People. We must we defeat a, them. Right. We have leverage in the Democratic Party. But our mm-hmm. primary concern should be the black community. That's yeah. who we serve. And by having a concern for the black community, we always enhance democracy for everybody. So right. everybody wants to be universal first. But we find out that when black people are particular, we always influence the universal because every time democracy is saved, it's either by a black woman or a group of black people come together. Dang. Ah, you're so right. OK, so let's can we just like trace that history a little bit? So like. <laughs> Go back to abolition, right? Come and on. who was it? Really, if you can go back that far. Go back That's to right. abolition. Who was it who actually sparked the Second Great Awakening? It was the, the rise of the Black church. That's right. It was, that's actually, and that's what's, what sparked the abolitionist movement. Exactly. It was Black people who organized, <laughs> free Black people who organized the, the abolitionist movement in Philadelphia, in the city where I'm sitting right now. And that is what sparked the rest of the movement to go out from there. Okay, now let's move forward. So it was Black people who who pushed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act over the line. And who did that benefit? Everybody Everybody. else. Everybody. Actually enough, Black and white women have been the biggest beneficiaries of the Civil Rights Movement. They participated, but it should be really clear that the whole space for white feminism Mm -hmm. was created by a black feminist frame. So as black women were creating spaces, they were enlarging spaces for white women at the same time. We've always said that we, when we are particular, we're not exclusive. Right. We expand. So now our our Latinx sisters and brothers benefit. I, I had an experience with one of my good friends, one of my good friends who runs the Amman Project here in, in Chicago, that's the Inner City Muslim Action Network. His name is Rami Nashibi. He's also a, a MacArthur Genius Award winner. Wow. They designed mm-hmm. the only memorial for Martin Luther King Jr. in Chicago, a group of Muslims, primarily who were first and second generation into this country. And this is what Rami said that 
knocked my socks off at the dedication, he says, and he's Palestinian. And he said, for those of us who are from the Muslim tradition, we must thank our black brothers and sisters. We have been given democracy and space because, and he points to Memorial, he points at Dr. King, he said, because of this man, I can practice my faith. Wow, it's so true. That's, 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 that's deep. true. That's deep. It's that true. Is really deep. A black Baptist minister expanded a Muslim brother coming from Palestine, mm-hmm. whose family is actually from Bethlehem. What? <laughs> to be able to practice his faith in the United States. Wow. That just gave me chills. It really did. And tangibly speaking, when you look at the AIM movement, American Indian movement, they chart their path. They were inspired by the civil rights movement. Yes. When you look at Cesar Chavez, he was inspired by the civil rights movement. When you look at the disabilities movement, they rose yes. in the 1970s. Yes. They were, they literally used Brown versus the Board of Education in their legal fights throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So you, what you say is absolutely true. And so, I, they, so that's really striking. So it is a hunger strike because it is a symbolic strike. People are saying, look, we are not satisfied. We need you to do better. Exactly. The other side has been looking at how to undermine voting rights since the Southern strategy. <laughs> that's year. right. Yeah. And this is not anything new to us. There's mm-hmm. always been some type of attack in some form or fashion. But we yeah. had this, we had judges, the Supreme Court mm-hmm. on our side and, and all of these peculiar little, you know, nuanced ways where, where we could push back on. Mm-hmm. Once that law came down, that decision came down, all of these Republican groups went into overdrive. Wow. And the Democratic Convention leadership did not think it as a priority. Because they didn't think that it was going anywhere. I'm like, well, ask oh, us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We know it's going somewhere. Ask us. We, we know. We're, we're experiencing this. Just talk to us. Yeah, we're on the ground. Exactly. exactly. Wow. So how does this hunger strike then connect to your faith? Like how, why, how did, why is it clergy who are organizing? Well, because any time that you are fighting against principalities and powers. You go on a fast, a hunger strike. So think about before Jesus engages in his ministry, he has to go on a hunger strike in the desert to face the enemy, to face the devil. He has to go on this strike. When Daniel is standing before principalities, he goes on a hunger strike or better yet, he goes on a fast to say, hey, look, just give me the fruits and vegetables. I don't want the food from your table. Don't give me your table food. Let me have food from my community. The fasting is a spiritual activity, not just a, a physical action of removing food, but it means that as a collective group of 24 pastors, that we are praying together every evening. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Every evening we come together and we we have prayer and we are praying for our nation and for our community and for democracy. We're praying that a new generation behind the millennial generation will continue to rise up that will hold spirituality in one hand and action in the other. And we'll be, be led by, you know, that great 
wonderful, dark-skinned Palestinian Jew by the name of Jesus. Hello. <laughs> um, um, bye. Who speaks yes. about the idea that, that you have the authority to be able to set the captives free. I want to ask a question because you brought up Black Jesus. You brought up the brown-skinned Palestinian who was colonized by white supremacist Rome, who did not have a vote. And I wonder, how do you look at the scripture and see Jesus speaking to democracy, speaking to the vote? How do you connect those two things? Jesus was upending Roman rule through every action that he was participating in. There's one particular look at scripture that is rarely viewed in the American context. And it's usually it's when Jesus calls those disciples. He said to be fishers of, of men. And we spiritualize it. There he is he's by this lake, by this sea. And uh, he calls uh, the guys that don't have much money first before he calls the wealthy guys, James and John, whose father owns a boat and sons of Zebedee and all of that. Mm -hmm. But what we forget is remember that the sea was owned by Rome. And as a result of seeing that this, knowing that the sea is owned by Rome, when he says, be fishers of men, all of them were fishermen. Remember, they had to give so much of their fish, of their money to Rome. Oh my God. Calling these men, he was undermining the whole economic base of Rome. What? So people are following him and all of a sudden Rome is seeing a decrease in its money because this brother keeps calling other brothers and sisters to say, be fishers of your own people. Don't be fishers for Caesar. Come and follow me and watch what happens. And then as a result, somebody, if they had telephones back then, they said, we're looking uh, at the account here and uh, we're not getting <laughs> as much money as we previously were. So please tell us, tax collectors, who you are on our payroll because we allow you to steal from your own people what's going on. And the conversation continues. And those who are working on behalf of the empire have issues with Jesus while people are growing and developing in the love that he is talking about. And a revolution is taking place that is nonviolent, that is centered on love and justice. And it's just a powerful thing to see. Jesus is upending empire. Okay, so I knew that, but I never connected those dots before. What? Okay, so first of all, is there a book we can read to go deeper into that? Where'd you get uh, that from? Is that something so, that like you thought of yeah. one day? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> really? Binding the Strongman is a great book that is an interpretation of Mark and that is one by phenomenal, phenomenal scholar. You can also look at uh, Obrey Hendricks piece yes. on Jesus, a tremendous, tremendous piece that he breaks these things down. But looking at the history of Rome, John D uh, Dominic Crossan does a piece saying, talking about what Rome owned and that anything mm -hmm. in the sea is owned by Caesar and anything that you're allowed to have is solely by the blessing and privilege of Caesar. So you have to thank Caesar when you fish, not God. Ooh. And so Jesus is saying, stop fishing for him. And so it's a double entendre language. So how do you That's use so language deep. that doesn't set off alarm yes. bells among <laughs> the people who've colonized you? Be fishers of men. And really he's saying, yo, look, roll with me. Stop fishing for this dude because my father owns the sea. Not Caesar. Right. right. And we know that See, the difference between, let me just say the difference between 
the way that the black church or people who have been oppressed read the scripture. Because we can actually, we can get into the minds and also get into, we get into the scene of what's happening and see in a 360 view, right? We're not just looking at, when I'm in the white evangelical church, we tend to read that scripture and only look at the inward spiritual, oh, fishers of men. Like, but when you're in the black church and you're in marginalized spaces, what you're focused on is how might they be experiencing this moment inside of this text? Right, right. And, it, and the political context matters. And so the thing that strikes me about what you just did is that you looked at the impact of their actions, of Jesus' actions, not just what he said. The impact right. was an economic impact. It had an economic impact on Rome. And that is one thing that can tell us what Jesus' intention was. But older preachers would do this all the time, which you just mentioned. I love the way that in Black folk preaching that they talk about when Jesus died, who was excited? This whole preacher talks about, he said, and the owner of the funeral home is excited because no longer people were being raised from dead. The doctor was excited because now he had more patients because they were not being healed. You know, the grocer was excited. You know, he was going through all of the economic. That's what he was really doing. He's going through all of the economic impact of Jesus's death because Jesus was causing business to slow down. Right. And that's something that's part of the black tradition to be able to look at things from a variety of angles where in the evangelical tradition, it's personal. It's yeah, about it's you. Exactly and when it becomes right. personal, it then has no, our faith should threaten empire just by being who we are. And if it's personal, it can then be next to Caesar. And mm-hmm. Caesar doesn't have an issue and he can pat you on the head and say, just go over there and just do your little worship. But when it's personal and public, then there's a tension that happens. Ooh, that's really good. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Many listeners of Freedom Road podcast have tracked with me over the course of years. You have been growing with me in conversations with people, but I think that there is nothing more powerful than the power of story, family story, to heal the world. So that's why I wrote Fortune, how race broke my family and the world and how to repair it all. Our nation right now is really at the brink. In many ways, we're torn. We are more divided than we've been in more than a century. Now is the time for us to listen to each other's stories. Now is the time for us to lay down our arms and simply try to understand how we got here. And as a result, maybe even gain a new vision for where we can go together as a nation, as one America. 30 years of research, 10 generations One family, the roots of race, the degradation, the resistance, and the rebellion, the rising, the calls to truth-telling, repair, and forgiveness. Fortune drops on February 8, 2022. 
So pre-order now. When you pre-order, you help bump Fortune up so that the people who need to see it do. Pre-order Fortune, and let's continue to walk this road together. So black churches have traditionally made a big deal out of election days, like souls to the polls and pulpit time to candidates and other things. Why does the vote matter theologically? The vote itself, why does the vote matter theologically? The vote speaks to the methodology where we keep at bay being three-fifths of a human being. Hello. Because in the Constitution, it's written in our document. Mm -hmm. The vote keeps at bay the weakness of the 13th Amendment. Yeah. Because the 13th Amendment says we abolish slavery. But if you're incarcerated, I can still utilize your labor, whether or not you're guilty or not. Even though it's going to be, most of you are going to be black and brown, I have to find a way to still use your labor. So the vote is our shield against the white supremacist threads that still function within this project that we are attempting to build, known as democracy and and the yet-to-be United States of America. So it is the most effective tool that we have. And if that vote is removed, we then turn our destiny over to Confederate and antebellum sources and forces who've consistently, let's be real, yeah, consistently that... Those Confederate haints, to use the Southern term for ghosts, Mm -hmm. they have haunted the American project since Point Comfort, Virginia. That's right, since 1619. Since 1619. And theologically, like connecting those dots to stave off the haint of slavery and the haint of Jim Crow is to protect the divine call to exercise dominion in the world. It's to protect the image of God in, in all people, yes, but particularly yes. in our people. Yes. And that's the thing. It's like when we protect the image of God in us, we transfer that protection always to other people. And that's one of the beautiful aspects of the Black freedom struggle, because it is not exclusive. It it does not balkanize its its ideas of freedom, Mm -hmm. whether you're talking about Fred Hampton or Malcolm X or Fannie Lou Hamer or an Ella Baker. They or Zella Baker would say this thing is bigger than a hamburger. 
I love, I love, I love, <laughs> Did I love she that. Say that? Yeah, she said it. She says talking about you. You all are sitting down thinking you're trying to get a hamburger. She said this thing is bigger than a hamburger. Oh, it's not about what you eat. It's about your how your children will live and what they will believe. It's bigger than a hamburger. So stop thinking it's about someone you're getting access to food. Uh, it's, it's about spiritual it's, food. And it's not even just about this generation, right? Like our actual vote, which will be suppressed in this next election in 2022. And God forbid in 2024. But we, it's also about the seventh generation from now, the 10th generation from Gosh. now. I love, I love it. This is more than a hamburger. This is more than even our own need right now. This is really about who will we be? Yes. Yes. Who, who will, will we, we be? be? So what has been for you, what has been the impact? Because I know that your church is incredibly robust in its civic engagement in Chicago. What's been the impact of that robust engagement in civil society of, of getting out there, not just to get in your prayer, your praise on or your prayer on on Sunday morning, but actually taking the blessing of a people who are flourishing out into the streets and into the voting booth and voting itself. What's been the impact of robust voting in your community in well, Chicago? You can see the how the community has been can be, can be altered when you have a robust voting block in your neighborhood. And, and all politics are local. And right. one story of what we were able to, to do by sharing the importance of voting is we were able to, to renovate a, a library in our, in our neighborhood. It's called, it's called the Carter G. Woodson Regional Library. And it has the largest collection, the Vivian Harsh collection, largest collection of African-American literature in the Midwest. Wow. But it was falling apart. And not been given the resources by the city. And because we have such a great voting population and people recognize the, the importance of everything from voting for who will be mayor, but also who's going to be the library commissioner. <laughs> wow. you know, all, all of these things. So, so yeah. as a church, we met and our community development corporation was the lead on this. As a church, we met with officials. We demanded along with all these other community groups that we want a library that protects, preserves, and promotes our culture. It's right here in the heart. It is the library that's used by the University of Illinois. If you want to get the letters that Du Bois was writing when he was in Chicago, you have to go to this library. If you want to get information about Fred Hampton, you have to go to this library. My you to God. Get actual writings of Ida B. Wells. You have to go to this library. Yes, what? it is the Carter G. Woodson Regional Library. Scholars use it all the time, but it wow. was falling apart. The facade had been, was falling apart because the city got the wrong contractor or somebody got paid and just did a poor job. And so they put a scaffolding up. Instead of repairing it because they were afraid of the lawsuits that somebody might get hit by a brick or something. So it had been there so long that people got, got used to the fact that, oh, the library is falling apart. And many times you can get used to oppression. You can get used right, to right. it. Be it becomes normative, the, 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 the peeling paint or the bricks that are falling apart, which put at risk your culture. And so we met with the officials and we said, hey, we want to get, need a new library, this, that, and the other. And our, our community development corporation did such a wonderful job. And they said, well, we don't have the money. The budget is not there. And they placed on the table 
here's what you did for, for five other libraries in neighborhoods that were not black. New and renovated. What about us? Oh, well, right. so, well we spent the money. Then it would begin. We spent the money. Okay. What the very f- good. No problem. All right. Thank you very much. Thanks for meeting with us. So then my task was on Sunday, I made an announcement at church. I shared with them some information about the library and said, we need you all to go to the, the library commission meeting. Now they're always open to the public. Nobody goes to a library commission meeting unless who you're goes to a library yeah. commission. The people who are like Dewey decimal meeting. nerds go. That's it. That's I didn't know there was a library commission. <laughs> the, nobody goes to it. This is well, the libraries have no controversy. They're just yeah. Everybody loves a library. People just so yeah. We show up and you have all these people who show up at the library commission meeting who have one single question in mind about the Carter G. Woodson Library. I didn't go. So the meeting ended <laughs> at 7.59 at 8.01. I got a call. Uh, Reverend Moss, can we meet? Sure, we can meet. I'd be more than happy. So our team, oh my God. are you kidding me? Wait, let me just stop right there. <laughs> so you said when your congregation showed up and asked, what yes. about the W.G. Woodson? Is Carter it what G. Woodson, called? yes. Mm-hmm. The Woodson Library. What about this library? A minute after the meeting, you got a call saying, After and the we meeting was adjourned, I got a call. What now? Immediately See? from the commissioner and the chair, can yeah. we meet at the library? I said, sure, sure, sure. So we brought our team. The community groups uh, showed up, the representatives, and they said, well, we found the money. We got a grant for $10 million. And we said, that's what? right. But that's not enough. We said, that's not good enough. We said that. Those who build this library must look like us. They must come out of the mass incarceration system so we can train sisters and brothers. And it must be green in your training. I'm going to tell. I'm going to tell. And they said, well, we've never done anything like this. The city has no plan or pattern or framework for that. And we said, we're glad you said that. Because our church used the same pattern for renovation. We, it was green, it was black, and people coming out of the mass incarceration system. And so here was the refrain. We just simply said, if a church that doesn't have the budget of a city can do this, why can't a city that has a budget of billions of dollars be able to spend to develop? So long story short, we got a brand new library. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> and it is it and specializes. Done. Yeah, it's beautiful. It is the jewel of the city. If you come to Chicago, you really should visit it. It's right down the street from our church. It's in the heart of the black community. It's amazing. But that is civic engagement. That yeah. is understanding the power of your vote. That yes. is knowing that you have the right to be able to say to elected officials, how you spend my money is this way. And yeah. again, when the library is built, though it has a focus on black culture, again, it benefits the entire city. That's what black democracy does and black faith. We are always benefiting everybody in the process. It's really true. As scholars flock to this library in order to, to learn more about mm-hmm. things that will benefit everybody, it's like an all win three, three, four times over. I mean, in many different layers. Wow. And so the voices and the, the power of the community that comes together to say, this is what we want. It doesn't just stop in the voting booth. It starts there, but it has to carry through. After the person is in office, you've got to actually continue to push them to do 
right and to do what is just and not to tell them this is what's just because they don't know. That's right. They're just up there. They need us to tell them which way to go. Yeah, they, they, need to so know. they need to meet the senior who's lived in the neighborhood for 40 years and say, baby, I was on your campaign. <laughs> and, you know, we need this library. Because I, I take my grandchildren there. They need <laughs> to meet the mother and father who have an eight-year-old who now bring their child to the library's reading room that has these special programs for small children. They need to meet the family because this <laughs> library specializes in Alzheimer's and dementia help to give you resources. So they need to meet the family of people who are caretakers. And when you meet your constituents in that way, and, and they're communicating to you that I voted for you because this vote is a protection. So I'm not three-fifths of a person. You saw the library as a throwaway because it was Carter G. Woodson name. It was in this neighborhood. This is not the jewel of, of the city, even though what was in it is nothing but jewels. That's right. The information. That's right. Treasure. But the vote is our shield against the three-fifths idea. And that's what we were doing. That is so fabulous. The vote is our shield against the three-fifths idea. Can I ask you, what do you say to people who are not African-American? What do you say to immigrants, people who are coming in, who have come into this larger narrative that has been playing itself out for 400 years? What do you say to people who are of European descent? who are trying to figure out how to do right, right now, in our context right now, what's your message to them? The vote is your shield against the Chinese Exclusion Act. The vote is your shield against Irish need not apply. The vote is a shield against cages created for children. The vote is your shield. We Against women having vote. the vote taken away from them. Exactly. It's, it's a shield if we are to build a democracy. It, it is a shield. And then our civic engagement, the vote and then our civic engagement is our sword where we can carve out. It's more of a pin, really, is what we do. We create policy that is beneficial to our children, to our grandchildren, to, to other generations. Think about this. The, the public school system was conceived by people who were formerly enslaved Africans. They wanted schooling for their children, but they shaped the policy to bless all. Wow. I did not know that. That's yeah. deep. Where did, what? Robert who Smalls. Was it? Robert, oh, Smalls, Robert Smalls. Yeah, Robert Smalls, one of the legislators in South Carolina, in South was Carolina. one of the people who started the first framing of what we know as the public school system. I didn't uh, Nicole know that. Hannah-Jones writes about it in the collection, the 1919 Project. But oh, it's a fascinating right. thing that, you know, what are you going to do with all of these formerly enslaved, four million people who had been enslaved? And the beginning policies for what we now know as public school system was formed by us, but it was designed specifically to bless all. See, now I have that book, but I actually have to read it. <laughs> it's so big. It's so big. I will. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to start reading it this week. This it's great. Weekend. I hope one day. If she's amazing. listening, if I just want to shake your hand one day outside of COVID. I know people don't want to shake Me hands. Too. But, Me yeah. too. Me <laughs> too. But I'm really appreciative of what she has done. And I'm delighted that she is at Howard raising a new generation yes. of fighters and thought leaders. Yes. Amen. Yes. And amen. 
So you mentioned the vote being uh, a shield against, and then you also talked about your children, like it's a protection for your children. Can I ask you, what are your dreams for your children? And what is the dream that is rising from the African-American community, the movement for Black lives, the manifest, the Black Manifesto, other spaces that, that you've been party to of what America could look like if we all had the vote, if we yeah. all, if we could finally achieve that beloved community that Dr. King talked about. Yeah. What is, what does it look like yeah. for our families seven generations from now? The poet I, I adore by the name of Eve Hewing. I hope one day we'll be able to interview Eve. She's Chicago-based, a wonderful, amazing poet. She's also a professor at the University of Chicago. She's an intellectual. She's married to this economist who's a member of our church. Wow. This, is, this is a wonderful young couple. But Eve, and, and I can't quote the poem, but she wrote a poem that she called it Afrofuturism, where it's about Emmett Till grew up. Wow. And it's mundane. It's about Emmett Till just going to get some ice cream. Just the, the simplicity of being a child and doing the wonderful things of a child. Wow. And to be able to flourish. And that's my dream that all Black children will be able to do the simple things, the joyous actions and mischief that does not cause death that children can be involved in. That's my prayer for my children, for other people's children, to, so that they can have those moments of being carefree and knowing that they are in a safe, protected space. I think that that's something that we dream for collectively as aunts and uncles and as cousins and parents and our godparents and, and coaches and you name it to mm -hmm. see children flourish. That's really one of the things that I would like for there to be a story of, of Trayvon Martin where he is flourishing and not martyred of Breonna Taylor, where she, we can see her further graduations from different institutions. That's re really my dream. We just, we want to be, we want everything that everybody else has. And it doesn't mean that it takes away from you. Because remember, every time we get a little bit what we fight for, it always benefits other people. Everybody. <laughs> it never ceases to amaze me. Yeah. No matter, anytime we try to do something, it always benefits other people. When black women say, as I'm thinking of Joanne Robinson in Alabama, who is really the true organizer of the uh, Montgomery bus boycott, mm -hmm. when her women's political council, when they say, this is what we're going to do, she says to the men, says, now this is going to benefit you. If we open the door for sisters, brothers, you're going to benefit. When we open the door for those who've been marginalized, we, we benefit. I think about differently and differently able folk. There was a fight about ramps. It, it's cost money, this, that, and the other. And now all these people are like, you know, I got an old, I need, I need a ramp, you know? <laughs> right, that's right. It, it benefits everybody. It benefits everyone. It benefits everybody. And that's the power of democracy. And we've got to keep giving a vision of democracy that is spiritually rooted, that sees each individual as interconnected. E even if you're, you're not a person that's rooted in spirituality, the idea of human connection is part of this universe. We are all 
connected. Every flower has a root system connected to the soil, is affected by the trees and the air. There is an interconnection we cannot deny. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. So when you look at 2022, what is the most difficult challenge that you see that we face to reaching that vision that you just outlined for us? Our democracy has been hacked by an algorithm of indifference to Mm. each other. We have turned over our future to a few people who are literally controlling the forward movement of our nation through their corporations. And I'm speaking of major tech firms, whether it is Facebook or I guess Meta now, Google (laughs) and others, Amazon. They, we have created technocratic or tech-centered feudal lords for our nation. And it's dangerous. It's really true. And and they have affected the election in 2016. They amplified lies. They put at risk millions of people as a result of saying COVID is not real. That's right. They put within the consciousness of so many people that BLM is some type of a terrorist organization coming to your community to destroy you. Uh, And by saying this, you're not saying that the companies themselves have said that. You're saying that their platforms, they have allowed those false messages to to ride free on their platforms. Is that right? They're privately owned companies and they are raising the question of, okay, if we restrict this, will it affect our bottom line? Well, And so they, they allow the lies or hate speech to filter through their platforms. And then an algorithm that reinforces someone's destructive belief or, as they found, they said, if you want someone to keep watching, I have to go more extreme the next time. So if the first time is, you know, it's a conservative policy or a liberal policy, whatever it may be, the next time I have to keep going fringe to keep you interested. So their business model is destructive to human flourishing. Wow. Ultimately. Yeah. Wow. So that's the largest challenge we have to face is the the platforms that actually have been connecting us, quite honestly, in the midst of the COVID lockdown and separation over like the last two years. So in so many ways, we're dependent on these platforms. That's the problem. (laughs) Right. And then at the same time, they are hurting us. So what do we need to do? Well, I believe that, and this is why voting becomes very important, Uh, that we have to carve out policy and have people in leadership positions who recognize that you cannot have a company that undermines democracy. You can't have a company policy, it's better put it away. You can't have a company policy that undermines democracy. Yeah, You can't have a company policy that 
promotes a particular lie that let's say that the, the, the election was stolen. It, it, it's not, but you, you have a policy that allows that to, to flourish on your platform. Mm-hmm. And then you have a policy in your platform that communicates the idea that you need to remove voting rights from other people. Okay, so tell me about that. What are you talking no, about? It's, it's just the same thing. It's just <laughs> like if I'm promoting the lie about oh. voting rights, that voting integrity and this, that, and the other. So I'm saying that, for, for example, Vice News did a really good piece where they talked about the election official in Fulton County who resigned. He just couldn't take the death threats. And they actually had the recordings of people who called him. Wow. So they called them back. They, was, they called the people back. And some of the people oh answered God. and told him, well, I'm fighting for democracy. And they all of them said, I saw online where such and such stole or stuffed a ballot. They, they, they repeated over and over again that some video online. So you have, we don't, there's no policy. There's nothing to say that this is wrong. We just keep bringing them in and having conversations with them. But there's certain things you can't do by mail. So the, so the number one thing we really need to do besides get out there and get our butts to the, to the voting polls in 2022, mm-hmm. is we need to be voting for people who actually have an understanding of the tech world exactly. and how to regulate it, mm-hmm. how to bring regulation to the tech world. I remember watching one of those hearings when they were calling Facebook forward, and they've also called forward some of the people who worked there. And one of the women who worked there said explicitly, she said, there is no regulation here. And that's part of the problem. We need to regulate ourselves. We need to regulate the tech industry. And that's just, that's part of a capitalist society. Part of what it means to be a capitalist society is that government is a partner in in a capitalist society, putting guardrails in order to limit the damage that capitalism can do in society. And we, as voters, get to determine how much damage are we willing to take Right. How much. And that's the thing. Without regulation, the voter has no say. It is only up to the company to to have a conscience if it does. But faced with a profit margin of billions versus a conscience, the company is always going to choose a profit margin of billions. That's why they need the voter to come in and say, no, we don't want to live that way. We, we want, we, we have, these are the guidelines we want you to play within because we don't want to sacrifice our children or our democracy to your billions. Yeah, that's exactly, you hit it. You hit the nail on the head. That's right. And it allows these tech companies to be weaponized by other countries. And the other problem is that though they are not specifically saying it, but their platforms allow for it, the genocide in Myanmar, the genocide in Ethiopia is being driven is tech-driven. Wow. Governments, when they want to put out propaganda and say hurt, harm, kill, or rape a certain group of people because they are whatever, they just put it out on one of these platforms. And there is no regulation. And so then it becomes viral. And people are like, well, I read it in my feed that your ethnic group is the, all the problems of our country. I must expel you. And that's where these problems are coming from. And that's the same thing is happening in the U.S. where you, we have an entire group of people who believe, liberal or Democrat, progressive, 
is a dirty word and where you have someone like, I don't even want to mention some of the people's names, but you have some legislators who are saying that maybe we need a divorce from the U.S. Yes. Oh, yes. So we actually have people talking about secession. Yes. Yes. Secession. We have people literally speaking the word in a very serious way about breaking off from the United States of America. We have not had that conversation with America since 1861. Quite some time. 1861. Because tech companies give them space to say what we thought was civically reprehensible at one time. So they have a platform. So white supremacists, white nationalists have a platform they never did. And they now, using grievance, merged with the right Southern strategy, which was white supremacist anyway, but it's white supremacist light because we're just not using all the language that we did right, before. Right, that's right. That's right. The Lee Atwood framework is when he was recorded saying, you can't say the N-word anymore, but we can say that your job is being taken by these other people who are not qualified. Just don't use the language. That on tape. tape. Yeah, wow. he's on tape doing this. So yeah. they have been studying. They have been studying. These people yeah, have yeah. been studying and they realize that their best friend is a tech company. If I can get my stuff out there, I can reach people I never thought I'd reach before. And now you have an avatar in Donald Trump (laughs) who speaks this language to a segment of the community that has been hacked by an algorithm of indifference that is rooted in a white supremacist ideology. Can I also just add to the tech companies that one other thing that we really need to to focus on in our voting in 2022 is education. So because you don't, you're not able, uh, an educated base is much less able to be manipulated like this. A a base that's educated on civic engagement in particular and civics I remember civics classes. Did you have civics classes back in the 80s? I, I, you, yeah, I did. I did. I did. And we, junior we, we had, high. It was called government, but it was, yeah, it was civics class. It's called government right. class. It was civics class. Our, yeah. Ours was called civics. And I tell you what, they never defined civics. So I didn't know what the heck this was. I really didn't, except for the fact that this is the class where I learned the, the three three forms of government. And this is, they showed the bill thing. I'm just a bill. Just a, but that was <laughs> public know. civics. Think about that. Schoolhouse rock. Was was public civics for every child. That's exactly, that's true. And we don't have that anymore. No. And so we need to focus on educating our base on civic engagement and on civics, not just how to engage, but on how government works. Otherwise, like, for example, when I was going to vote in the last election that I voted in here in Philadelphia, I was walking down the street and I saw a young man sitting by the car. They're always out there on the corner, hanging out. And I know them by name, right? And I spoke and I'm like, hey, are you guys going to vote? And he was like, ah, but, you know, they don't, there's nothing that they, they do for us. They never done anything for us. I'm not going to do anything for them. I'm like, this is not for them. This is for you. Right. Because if somebody gets into that office who doesn't want you here, he's going to, or she, he or she is going to legislate you out of this neighborhood. It's going to legislate you to jail. It's going to legislate you out of the opportunities for education. So I was explaining to him, this vote is for you. And he was like, not. So he, you know, came up with all the conspiracies, all the conspiracy theories. But I could tell that in the midst of his, of our conversation, he just simply didn't really understand how it all Mm -hmm. worked. 
Right. But there's a system. It's not just about one pull of a lever. There's, it's like a domino effect. If you don't pull that lever, somebody else will. And it could create a domino effect that comes back and bites you in the butt. It can take you down from behind. And so, so what do you think of the need to focus on education? I know in your city in Chicago right now, the teachers union or over the last few weeks, the teachers unions have been at, at war with the mayor about whether or not to go back to schools because of COVID. And they finally did work that out. But education in Chicago is a big deal. Education in Philadelphia, where I'm sitting, is a big deal. When we think about all of the the schools that have been closed, Black people in Philadelphia, Black children only make up 58%, I believe, of all the children in in all the public schools in Philadelphia. And yet they make up 80-something percent of all the children who have been impacted by closed schools, public schools that have been shut down. So... Talk to me about that, the need to focus on public education. There has to be a practical form of, of civics that enters into public education, but also in spaces like churches and other community organizations. When I say practical, I think one of the beautiful things that we, we got involved in was Freedom School. We had, we had, when Before COVID, we had a Freedom School that we, That's we so operated. Great. And one of, the, one of the lessons for smaller children was civics education, but it was through a practical aspect. They had to organize around one issue in their community. It might be just like, hey, we want to get the light to turn on. What you a know, great like idea. street light. Or something as simple as a street light or garbage being but they the, in that process they learn who does what. Yeah. And how you get certain things done and how your vote will affect if your lights are on or when the sewers are not working or if the Garbage is picked up. These are basic things. And I, I remember a story that Reverend Jesse Jackson told, which I thought was just so simple and so powerful, how to teach civics. Years ago, he was, and he used to use the story all the time. He was talking about the L.A. disturbance, the unrest in L.A. after Rodney King. And he was telling, talking to a group of young people, <laughs> young people who were saying that this is wrong, da, 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 da. And he says, well, we need to get out and vote. And they were fussing and cussing at him, saying, that voting doesn't do anything, blah, 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 blah. And, <laughs> and then he said this, which I thought was powerful. He said, I need all of you to raise your hand, those of you who would like to be on the jury for these, for these officers. If I can get you, if I could put each of you on the jury, I could promise you that you could at least be a possibility on the jury. And all the young people raised their hands. And then he said, the only way you can do it is if you're registered to vote. So you want to be on the jury but you can't be. You're fighting against the entryway in order to get through the door to be on the jury. And that started a conversation where uh, Push at the time was trying to do some civics education out in LA to say that, okay, what is it that you want to change? What's something simple? I'm not talking about changing the whole city. What on your street do you want to change? Well, the sidewalk. Well, okay, let's talk about the sidewalk. How do we do that? Who's in charge of that? And if you never voted for that individual, they're not going to respond to you. But who would like to run for the position to be in charge of sidewalks for L.A.? You know, whatever it is. So they have this, they have the civics education. And people understand, well, this makes sense. It's very simple. It's not about the presidential. It's also about who picks up my trash? how the money is spent, 
how much I pay and and how my house is assessed. That's right. For taxes. That's right. Should this money go to, should we have a football team at our local high school? Yes, we should. Well, you didn't vote, so they took the money away. So you love going to the football game, but you're mad that we can't have Friday night lights. They've been turned off because you don't vote. Civics in a practical way, not on the Democratic Republican campaign. But do you like Friday night lights? Do you want to go to the AAU tournament? That's those are real civics. That's so good. Yes. Yes. Oh, my God. So it looks like one of the things I was actually going to ask is what do we all need to do now in order to enter 2023 with a stronger democracy? I mean, I just think you just named it. It is honestly freedom schools. Like we really need, we need to do practical training of our children and our young people and honestly, our adults as well. And then the training isn't, it's not, okay, get into a classroom with your paper and write stuff down. It's Let's have a project. Let's actually, let's change something. Let's change something in our community. Wow, that's so good. That's so that's good. That's how people remember. You, you remember if your brain will remember. You can do the memory stuff all day long. Yes. But if I'm using my hands and I'm working on something and working in a group and, and I'm thinking through things, I remember it in a completely different way. It becomes, I remember as a young person in middle school, in junior high, when there was going to be a 1%, it was a 1%, it was a penny levy or 25 cent levy for our school system. And we were going out, we were going door to door. And I had some friends who were in the band and I, I was, you know, playing basketball and everybody did something. They said, well, we want to continue these programs. There was someone who was an artist and said, I want to be an artist one day. And so they would go to, they said, go to, you know, people who many of them didn't have children and they had their kids in a private school. And you had to look at a child in the face and say, I'm not, I don't want 25 cents. <laughs> and I said, you mean you're going to take away my art program? Right. Um, you're going to take cents? away my, my basketball program? Wow. Because we wanted to, I wanted to play basketball. <laughs> yes. So I, I to, so I was going door to door. My other friend is in the band. He's like, hey, I want to play clarinet. So, so, right. And so we're going door to door. And it was a really beautiful way that our, his name was Dr. Peter John, was the, the principal, authorized and organized the school to go out and say, well, if they don't want to vote for this, you all go and make the case. I can't do this politically, mm. but you all, this is a, and our teachers help create this interesting curriculum where we were in the street. We were just, we, we were, didn't even realize we were learning civics, but we were. Wow. By going door to door. Wow. So let me ask you last question. When you wrote the, the forward, you wrote the forward to Fortune. And I was honestly flabbergasted by your forward. I literally, my jaw dropped in the middle of it, making comparisons to W.E.D. Du Bois. I was like, um, hello. <laughs> it's like, what? But the thing that really struck me about your forward was your connection to the past, right? Your connection helping us to see how this work actually connects to what has come before and the value of it. And I wonder if for our listeners now, you can help connect the dots to your hunger strike, <laughs> to the need to vote in order to repair what race broke in the world mm. and our call to civic engagement. 
My ancestors were on a forced hunger strike. I get to choose a hunger strike. Monica and I went to South Carolina and we went, we, we do these black history tours and I'm looking forward to going on another one with somebody I yes, know. And then Monica, so it's going to be led by Freedom Road. And Sorry. we went on this plantation and we were in a quote unquote slave cabin and we were learning about the calorie intake of enslaved Africans. And they had done some excavations you know, in, this, in this cabin. And they found underneath the cabin these tools and they were cooking tools that had to be hid because men or women would go out at night to be able to forage for food. They would make their way by the river and they would collect maybe some shrimp. They might find some type of other animals for additional protein because they gave them the minimum calorie intake or they gave them a calorie intake just enough to survive as a form of punishment to stay in your place. And as we were in that space, we thought about privileges that we have and all of that. But our ancestors were forced on a hunger strike, but yet believed that they could create something new in this very strange world. And the celebration around the ability to vote, that the moment we got the right to vote, all across the South, the legislature changed immediately. Immediately, that year. That's that right. That year, all mm. these people ran and they were so well-informed and deeply committed to those who couldn't read and those who were still on forced hunger strike because of the way in which the South tried to keep its grip on, on former enslaved Africans. The state and the federal legislature changed overnight, and they started putting policies together for public schools, for what we now call HBCUs. That's right. That, that was their legacy. <laughs> and then they got with Masons wow. and Eastern Stars to be able to bring together insurance policies to help someone go to school somewhere else. My God, that's amazing. Our community, when they saw the idea to be able to vote, they saw that as the hand of God, that God's saying to them, I'm going to give you this shield. I'm going to give you this tool. I'm going to give you, borrow John uh, Henry, I'm going to give you a hammer and I want you to hammer in the morning. <laughs> I want you to hammer in the evening. I want you to use this hammer and I want you to carve out a tunnel through this mountain. That's our answer. So when we choose, I get to choose. And there are so many children in our nation who don't get to choose. And they're on a forced hunger strike because of the structure of our policies. Yes. They go to bed hungry and the mother shops three or four times a week. Why does she shop three or four times? Because I've got $4 today. I may have $3 on Thursday. So I've got to get milk today. And what can I get on Thursday? I get some rice. No, I'll get some beans. 
they're on sale. All oh, the prices are up because it's COVID. So what do I do? Well, I'm going to go to this other spot and I'm going to get some cheap food that has a lot of preservatives. And then all of a sudden, my child now has got a taste for stuff that's in a bag, but I can afford it. But he's been eating it so much, now he's diabetic. That's right. That's right. So malnourished, but overfed at the same time. That's what this is about. I get to choose it. But other people don't. And to protect the right to vote, to highlight the right to vote, the importance of the right to vote, it is sacred sacrament to be able to Clearly, I get to testify. I get to be a witness. And scripture says, I must be a witness. And I want to be a witness for good and to utilize my vote for, not for myself, but so that just as Eve Hewing said, that children can grow up and experience the mundane joy of just being a child. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Check the show notes to see how you can connect with the voting rights struggle in America. The Freedom Road Podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This episode is engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road Podcast is produced by Freedom Road, LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for our updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again next month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. Freedom Road.